Our scripture reading today is from Psalm 126, verses 1 through 6. This is found on page 517 and 18 in the Pew Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, please take the one right there in front of you as a gift from us. We would love for you to have a copy of God's word in your home. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There we go. That's better. Sorry about that, Spencer and Hayden. Thank you, guys. I'll own that, right? No one ever thinks about the sound guy until something goes wrong. That one's on me. Well, thank you for being here and uh, sticking with me through my mistake this morning. I'm glad you braved the cold and are with us because I am thrilled uh, to be covering Psalm 126 this morning. I'm really excited about uh, what this psalm says and what I hope God will teach us uh, in our time together while we study it. Um, But I believe deeply that we uh, won't get there without God's help this morning. And so if you would, uh, bow your heads with me and we'll uh, ask for God to help us during this time. Father in heaven, thank you for um, your word. Thank you for the beauty uh, and, the, and the poetry in the book of Psalms, and I'm especially grateful this morning for Psalm 126. As we study it together, I pray that you would um, open our hearts and minds, Lord. I pray I'd get out of the way and that you speak through me, Father. I ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, I think that one of the worst feelings in the world happens in those five to ten seconds right after you realize that you've lost something really important to you. You know what I'm talking about, right? Even, even if it's something relatively small like your car keys, I don't know, I, I have a certain kind of path that I check, right? My pockets, right? I'm checking to make sure everything's there. Maybe you're kind of searching through your purse, right? Oh no, the car keys aren't there. And panic starts to set in, the adrenaline rush hits you, and then, well, with car keys, they've been in your hand the whole time, haven't they? Come on, I'm the only one that's ever done that. I'm checking, I'm going, oh no, my my car keys are right in my hand, right? So losing car keys, sure, that's one end of the emotional roller coaster when you've lost something important. I imagine, that's a key word here in a second, you'll see why, I imagine the other end of that range would be losing your child. Now, Ashley and I have not lost Bevan yet, uh, but when I was just five or six years old, right after first grade, my parents did lose me at a massive 4th of July festival. And this was a legit losing. This wasn't like I was right around the corner in the next aisle at the grocery store. I'm talking thousands of people, and my parents and I were separated for more than 20 minutes. So parents in the room, you don't even probably have to be parents. Just imagine the panic setting in, right? The fear, that, that feeling of losing your, your kid. I texted my mom this week. I, I have memories of that event, but I wanted to hear how she is processing it all these years later. And here's what she texted me back. She said, when we asked you what happened, when, we had, when they had found me, you said, I was just looking at something, and when I looked up, everyone was a stranger. 
my mom also writes, I can still hear your cute little voice saying those words, and it brings tears to my eyes even today. I mean, I think the big takeaways here are that my mom still cries over me and that my voice used to be little and cute, right? <laughs> okay, yeah, used to be, okay. But we can all relate to this, can't we? The feeling of losing something that's important to us is horrible and terrifying. I've been reflecting on that truth this week, and I think what makes it even harder is that loss in our lives is not immune from the abstractions of our lives. And I think the abstractions of our lives are its heartbeat, love, trust, integrity, relationship, friendship, community. When we lose these things, when you lose love or trust, it's not as tangible as losing your car keys, but we know it when it happens, don't we? One loss that I've observed more recently and more often in, in our culture and in our society is a loss of joy. A loss of joy. Maybe you've noticed the same thing too. Maybe you've noticed it with the people that you interact with at work or just in your daily life, or maybe you've even noticed this loss in your own life, a loss of joy. A couple of articles just dropped recently, just a month ago from the New York Times. Pessimism may be bad for your health. A congregant actually emailed this article to Christ Community's resident pessimist. It's our campus pastor out at Olathe, Nathan Miller. Here's what he said when he got this email. He said, great, so now I'm not just a pessimist, but I'm also dying faster. <laughs> and then the great tagline, but I guess I just already assumed that. <laughs> well, here's the other article, and this, I mean, that one's serious. This is more serious, I think. Depression is up 37% in teenagers in just 10 years. I mean, students, if you feel like this describes you, you are not alone. Your church loves you and would love to help. Please talk to me about that if this is you, students. But it's not just our middle schoolers and our high schoolers who are struggling with a lack of joy, isn't, is it? This is an every age sort of problem. And I think that sometimes this time of year can make it even a little bit harder because, well, it's supposed to be the hap happiest season of all. This is why John doesn't have me in the band. <laughs> but joy to the world, right, this time of year? I know I feel the pressure to make the most of the holidays. Have you ever heard that? You've got to make the most of the holidays and you've got to be happy. No pressure there. But that's just it, isn't there? There's an important distinction between happiness and joy. Yes, there's overlap to be sure, but we do ourselves a disservice if we make them a one-to-one. -one. Think of it this way. Joy, or a lack of joy, is like the climate of your soul, while happiness is its temperature. I mean, temperatures change all the time, right? Especially here in the Midwest. It could be 60 degrees tomorrow. Let's hope, but probably not. But you get the point. Temperatures fluctuate. They change. But climates, they're more stable, less change. Uh, of temperature, we, we ask the question, what is the temperature today? Uh, of, of climates, we ask the question, what is the climate in this region or in this part of the world? And so this morning, as we look at Psalm 126, we're talking about the climate of joy and not the temperature of happiness. 
And that leads us to the good news, the best news contained in Psalm 126. I don't want you to miss this this morning because this news is incredible. It's good news for all of us, no matter what's going on in our lives right now. I think the big idea of Psalm 126 is this. Joy can be found. Joy can be found. Listen, if you consider yourself a Christian, then then joy has to become the serious business of your life. Because when Christians, when people look at Christians, they should see, I think, lives that are overflowing with love and joy. But all too often, that isn't the case. All too often, Christians are marked by a a, a surprising and disturbing lack of love and, and, and a lot of joylessness. Christians have lost our fair share of joy, too. But praise God, because joy can be found. And and this is true if you're a pessimist or an optimist. This is true if your life is going awesome right now or if your life is going horrible right now. This is true, to, to borrow from Pastor Bill last week when he talked about love, this is true even if you are in the valley of trouble. It's true if you're on the mountaintop of God's promises and joy can be found, yes, even in the valley of waiting. Because the truth is, joy is not dependent upon our good luck. Joy is not dependent upon our good health. And joy is not dependent upon our good disposition. No matter where you're at, no matter who you are, joy can be found. And in Psalm 126, this ancient poem, this ancient song that was sung by God's people millennia ago, there are three sections, three clues for where to find and how to cultivate joy in a broken world. I want to read this psalm again for us one more time as a whole unit. And as I'm reading, be on the lookout for these clues of where we might be able to find joy in a broken world. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Our first clue from Psalm 126 comes from the first three verses. And I think that this clue that the psalmist gives us us is entirely dissonant with our culture today. Here it is. Joy is found in history, not distraction. Joy is found in history, not distraction. Like most psalms, we don't know the specific events that were surrounding the psalmist when he wrote this chapter. And in some ways, I think that's the beauty of the book of Psalms. They're they're written so that we can use them at any point in our lives, and they fit all of life's triumphs and trials. That's why the book of Psalms is so wonderful. And so while we don't know for sure I do think that the psalmist, when he wrote this beautiful poem, was most likely going through a very difficult time. I mean, think about some of the clauses in this chapter. Sowing tears, going out with weeping, asking God for restoration. I think it's likely that the psalmist was maybe in a valley of struggle or in a valley of waiting. 
And with that backdrop, I, I find it fascinating as to where the psalmist begins in verses 1 through 3, because he doesn't begin with a cry of anguish. He, he doesn't begin even with his request to God. No, the psalmist begins with a history lesson. It was like a dream, he says. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with shouts of joy. Hey, remember the time when our joy was so abundant that the surrounding nations actually stopped and said, who is this God of theirs? In verses 1 through 3, the psalmist is recounting the joys of his people and their collective history. And I think this is really different than the way that I process trouble in my life that leads to joylessness. I think it's, they're really almost opposed to one another because I'll just speak for myself here. When I experience trouble and I sense it leading towards a joylessness in the climate of my soul, I really struggle to pull myself outside of me and now. Me and now. And I think those two small little words sum up our culture really well. Me and now. But what does the psalmist do? Where does he go looking for joy when he struggles to find it? The psalmist isn't talking about me and now. The psalmist is talking about us back then. And that's a marked difference, isn't it? Me and now versus us marked versus us back then. You see, I think we have such an anemic definition of joy in our culture because far too often we derive our joy from our current circumstances, from the immediate, from how I feel in this moment right now, maybe I'll feel different on Tuesday. And yes, yes, of course, our current circumstances are important. And we live in the present. The now is important, of course. But lasting joy, lasting and abundant and overflowing joy is found first in a shared identity, not in our moment-by-moment -moment experiences. Don't miss that this morning. Joy is an identity. And if you're a Christian, then your identity is with the family of God. And that identity, the family of God, that runs a whole lot deeper than our current circumstances, doesn't it? The family of God has a rich and abundant history that stretches far beyond our 80 or 90 years, if we even get that many. The God of the universe, if we're a Christian, has adopted you and adopted me into his family. And our Father God, this is the one who parts the waters, provides manna from heaven, makes the walls tumble down, and defeats the giants. That's our Father. And more than that, this Father, he, he comes to us. He comes to us in the person of Jesus, the God-man, enters our world, knows our pain. Jesus, who calmed the storm, healed the sick, and raised the dead to life. Jesus, who went willingly to the cross for our heartache and sin, and who walked out of the tomb three days later, defeating death and providing a way for eternal life. Listen, church, if you're a Christian, these are not just their stories. These are not just Bible stories. If you're a Christian, these things, the calming of the water, the, the parting of the sea, bringing the dead back to life, these are not just stories, these are our stories. This is our history. If you're a Christian, then you belong to the family of God. And you can tap into this beautiful and abundant and rich history 
And you can seek to find joy there because joy is found in history, not distraction. And, and I get it. I do. Because remembering the joys of old in our collective history doesn't make the hard times go away now. Of course not. I mean, the point of the, the history lesson in verses 1 through 3 is to help us step outside of ourselves, to move from me and now to us back then. Because when our mode of operating starts to become us back then, then what happens slowly over time as we look back and we look around is that we are reminded of all of the ways that God came through. And our faith that he will come through again grows. I mean, doesn't this connect so beautifully to our series in the book of Daniel? And we looked at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are literally standing at the furnace where they are about to be murdered. But as I study the Old Testament, as I, as I look at those characters, I'm willing to bet that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had an us back then kind of faith, kind of view of the world. And so even though they are at the precipice of their destruction, they look back and they look around and they say, God can do this. And their faith grows that God will do this. They had what Pastor Anthony called even if faith. And I think it's largely because they operated out of this mode of us back then. So we need the history. We need to move from me now to us back then. Because the alternative, the alternative to finding joy in history, I know what I do when I forget to remember. I look for distraction. I try to find anything and everything that will provide that, that numbing feeling. You know what I'm talking about. You, you grope around for, for anything that will make the trouble of today fade away. Sex, alcohol, food, mindless television, shopping, Facebook, busy calendar, video games, sports, grades, work, reaching for that dopamine hit from your smartphone one more time. I mean, these might be fine things, I guess, on their own, but if you're looking to them to change the climate of joy in your soul, you are going to be disappointed every single time. So let me ask you, are you remembering or distracting? Remembering or distracting? Pastor and author Eugene Peterson writes, the enormous entertainment industry in America is a sign of the depletion of joy in our culture. Society is a bored, gluttonous king employing a court jester to divert it after an overindulgent meal. But that kind of joy never penetrates our lives, never changes our basic constitution. Distraction will fall short for you every single time. Only active remembering will pull you outside of yourself and allow you to find joy no matter what. So are you remembering with, with personal devotions, prayer, Bible reading, reflection? You see, we need to remind ourselves and tell ourselves every day of what God has done for us back then. Are, are you remembering with Christian community by coming to church? You see, when we're in the pit, when we're experiencing life's hardships, it's really difficult to tell ourselves of what God has done for us back then. We need each other. 
And I mean, think about what church is on a Sunday morning. There's 150 of us gathered here right now to hear about a song that's thousands of years old. What is this if it's not us back then? That's why we gather. That's why we sing. Because we're going to fail on our own and we need each other to remind all of us what it is that God has done in our history. You know, we have a new community group session that's starting up in mid-January. If you feel like you don't have these types of relationships where you can remember together, let me know. We'd love to try to help connect you with a group. We think this is so important to remember together because joy is found in history, not distraction. Well, our second clue this morning is found in verse 4. Let me read it for us again. You can look back at your passage. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Oh, this is the only request in the psalm. It's the only time that the psalmist asks for anything, and it's the shortest part. In verse 4, the psalmist simply asks God for restoration. And he does this because, you see, joy is found as a gift, not on a treasure hunt. Joy is found as a gift, not as on a treasure hunt. And I do think this is a really key point because when I think about finding something that I've lost or I haven't ever had, I do think about the search to find it first. I think about a good old-fashioned treasure hunt with, where the X marks the spot and you've got to navigate through and find that thing. But that's not how the psalmist frames out finding joy. Instead of going on a treasure hunt, the psalmist simply turns to God and asks for it. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Give me back my joy. Anyone who's spent any amount of time around kids know how great they are at asking for stuff, right? They they ask for a snack. They ask to be held. They ask to be played with. And this time of year, kids, well, they're the best at asking for gifts, aren't they? Christmas time, they're asking for gifts. And I think when it comes to joy, we could learn something from the children in our lives. And we could learn something from the psalmist too, who when he finds himself in a joyless place, he asks for it. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. The Negev is the southern region of Judah. It's a desert There's not much flourishing. There's no streams of running water. Talking about the climate, you you wouldn't describe it as a joyful climate. And this is the metaphor that's chosen by the psalmist to describe his life, a dry, arid desert. And that's beautiful, to be sure. It has its own beauty, but only if you know where your next drink of water is coming from. The psalmist is saying that his soul is dry and arid, a desert in here. So God, bring your streams, bring your rush of roaring waters, which, I mean, look at that picture. This seems like an impossible request. It's the desert. Have you ever seen a sign like this out in the desert? Warning, flash flood area. I mean, it's it's a little bit laughable, and it's almost impossible to imagine water existing there, but those signs aren't there just as a joke. The rains do come, the waters do rush in, and they fill these dry stream beds. And and just for a moment, there's flourishing. Just for a moment, there's joy. 
Do that, God. Do that in my soul. Bring your rushing waters of joy. So let me ask you, are you asking or hunting? Are you asking or hunting? If joy is the X marks the spot on your treasure map and you're searching for it and your whole life is pointed at it, then you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. And I also think that this is really dissonant with our culture. I think if you ask most parents what they want for their kids, the answer would be something along the lines of this. Well, all I really want is for them to be happy and healthy. That's not too much to ask. I just want happiness and and health. And as a new dad, I get this pull deeply. It seems like happiness or joy and safety are, are fine sort of ultimate goals. We've even baked this into our country's founding documents, the hunt for happiness. Three unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You see, I think that this is terribly misguided. We simply can't pursue joy as an end unto itself. We'll fall short every time. Author Viktor Frankl in Man's Search for Meeting, a book of his memoirs from his time in a concentration camp, he makes this point powerfully when he writes this. He says, happiness cannot be pursued, but it must ensue. Happiness cannot be pursued, but it must ensue. So even while reflecting upon his time in a concentration camp, Frankel says that happiness cannot be our ultimate goal. Happiness is never an end in and of itself, he argues, but is always a byproduct of something better. Pastor John Ortberg builds on this, saying that we we all know intuitively deep down that happiness can't be our ultimate goal. He writes, imagine if you could plug your brain into a special outlet and it would dispense the feelings of happiness forever on end, on a loop but it would also put you in a coma forever. Once asleep, you'd have amazing dreams, happiness surges, pleasure always, but you would never be able to go anywhere. You wouldn't be able to accomplish anything or leave a legacy, and you'd never have any real relationships with other humans. Kind of like the Matrix, right? Would you do it? Of course not. And that's because intuitively we know that there is something out there, or maybe even better, there's someone out there better than happiness, better than joy. And happiness and a joy come from giving yourself to that someone, making God the X on your treasure map, making God the ultimate in your life, and happiness and joy follow as a byproduct. Because joy is found as a gift, not on a treasure hunt. But here's the catch, I know. Because some of you are thinking right now, man, I don't know, Paul. You're talking about asking, not hunting. I feel like I've been asking for joy my entire life, and I still got nothing. I believe that. I get that. And that's why we need our final reminder, our final clue from our passage on where to find joy, contained in verses 5 and 6. I'm going to read those for us one more time. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. 
He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is our final clue this morning. Joy can be found. That's the big idea. But here's the promise of Psalm 126. Joy can be found even in a field of tears. Joy can be found even in a field of tears. I think these two verses in Psalm 126 are some of the most beautiful in all of the Psalter. What a gorgeous promise that those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. If you plant with tears, then when the harvest comes, you won't be able to stop celebrating. The one who goes out weeping, casting out seed, will return home with shouts of joy, weighed down by such an abundant harvest. And I hope those of you who are experiencing the field of tears right now, and I know there are many of you in that place, I hope this comes as a hope-filled promise. You see, the Bible never minimizes our pain. The book of Psalms is an in-your-face declaration that, that God never tells us to just buck up and get over it. The Psalms allow us to sit for a while in the various fields of tears that we find ourselves in as we go throughout life. And this, I hope, is incredible news for the hurting. No, God doesn't promise that there'll be no tears for those who follow him. And God doesn't even promise that there will be a minimum of tears for those who follow him. But God does promise to turn those same tears into laughter. It reminds me of the movie Inside Out. I was a little bit late to this movie, but I'm glad I finally watched it because it's a brilliant movie by Pixar where the emotions of the main character are personified in her head. And Joy, you know which one on the screen Joy is, right? Joy wants everything to be great and happy all the time. And Sadness, well, she's sad. (laughs) But she's also deep and beautiful. And the plot of the whole movie, yes, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, a little too late, okay? The plot of the whole movie is that joy and sadness have to work together. Neither one of them can fully flourish alone. But together, together they bring meaning and a richer joy than the character joy could ever have brought on her own. I mean, it's the kind of the crucial scene in the movie where there's this third character who's experienced a field of tears. And of course, it's Pixar, so he's crying candy, But he's really crying, and Joy kind of tries to mask over it. It's going to be okay. It's not a big deal. We'll move on, upward and onward, and it doesn't work. And what does sadness do? Sadness just comes and just sits and empathizes. And and Joy joy gets it. Like, sadness, you're not bad. We need need to complement one another here, and there's a richer joy than there was before. And this isn't to say, of course, that God punishes us with hard times so that he can swoop in as the Savior bearing gifts of joy. That's not the point of this psalm. No, the point of the psalm, it's a beautiful promise that even though you and I were the ones who broke this world, even though you and I are the reason that that hardship and and, and difficulty and trouble kind of even exist as we explore the, the timeline of the Bible, even though that's true. What's also true is that joy is still possible because of God's goodness. It's true that even in a broken world, joy can be found, and often you find joy and sadness right there with one another. 
And for those who are in God's family, joy is not just possible, it's inevitable. It's coming. And that's the tenor of this psalm. That's what 5 and 6, verses 5 and 6 drive at. Tears will turn in to laughter. Those who go out weeping will return with a harvest of joy. Will, will, shall, shall. This is happening. This is coming. Every one of our tears will be accounted for. Every one of them will eventually reap joy. Which means, if you think about it, the best weepers now will be the best laughers then. And some of you have planted a whole lot of tears. I know because I'm doing life with you as your pastor. And you've watered them. And I know you may not be able to see it now. I know the impatience that comes with waiting. So does the psalmist. And I can't tell you when either, but those seeds will grow. Just imagine the harvest for you. The fruits of joy and delight, satisfaction and contentment. And they will be yours forever. Joy that can never, ever be taken away. So final question this morning. Are you planting or despairing? Planting or despairing? And we have to talk about this, right? Because some of you might be thinking now, great, okay, tears now, joy later. I guess I'll be joyful when I'm dead. But that's not the point of the psalm either. Sure, it's true that while living in this broken world, we'll never experience the fullness of joy that we are created for. On this side of eternity, there will always be a gap between who we are created to be and who we are. That's true. But part of the joy now is anticipating and waiting for the joy then. I mean, think back to when you were a kid, or if you're a kid here today, then just think forward six days to Christmas Eve. You're tossing you're turning, you can't get to sleep because you're waiting and you're anticipating the beauty of Christmas morning. I mean, what is that feeling on Christmas Eve if it's not joy? And this psalm, the point is that as a Christian, our entire lives should be in that posture of experiencing joy now because of the joy we know is coming then. Listen, church, what God did in the past, he will do in the future, and he will do it for you, which is why joy can look past our circumstances. It's why you should seek to plant instead of despair. God's faithfulness and consistency, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, is why joy can be found even in a field of tears. But to find it, to find joy in the midst of tears, then what we have to do is we have to ache for home. We have to ache for home. Every moment of joy now is an occasion and an opportunity to celebrate and anticipate the greatest joy that is coming. Every happiness, every pleasure is nothing but a signpost, a signpost that is pointing us home. I love, I love how Rich Mullins describes this so beautifully in his song, If I Stand. I won't sing it. You already heard me do that poorly once. I'll read it for you. He writes this. So if I stand, let me stand on the promise that you will pull me through. And if I can't, let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you. And if I sing, let me sing for the joy that has borne in me these songs. And if I weep, let it be as a man 
who is longing for his home. Maybe you noticed the subtitle to our psalm this morning. It's called a Psalm of Ascent. It's one of 15 in a row that happened from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And, and these psalms were set aside to be sung by God's people while on their way to Jerusalem. These songs were sung by God's people on their way home. It's likely that Jesus sang this psalm every Passover as he traveled to Jerusalem with his family. Can you picture that with me? Jesus, as a, as a young boy, maybe he's on the way to Jerusalem with his family when the, the account in Luke 2 happens, right? And he's a 12-year-old boy. Maybe on the way there, they sang this psalm of ascent, Psalm 126. Can you imagine what this psalm would have meant to Jesus? And maybe you've always pictured Jesus as stoic, serious, even stern or angry, or maybe Jesus never left the manger for you. In your mind, he's kind of just still a baby asleep in the hay. But these verses limit Jesus' humanity, I think, because a full reading of Jesus' life reveals a man who understood the roller coaster of life. He understood the emotional highs and the emotional lows. And it's why one of my favorite nicknames for Jesus comes from Isaiah chapter 53, the man of sorrows, the sad guy. Can you picture that with me? The man of sorrows on his way to Jerusalem, maybe for the final time with his disciples? Perhaps they were singing Psalm 126, the man of sorrows on the way to Jerusalem to die on a cross for all of us, singing these words, those who plant with tears will reap with shouts of joy. Jesus sure planted with tears, didn't he? But not just with tears. No, Jesus planted with his blood. For he took upon himself all of our shame and all of our guilt on the cross. And he himself was planted in the ground for my transgressions and for yours, dead and buried. Man of sorrows indeed. But, but praise be to God that the man of sorrows didn't stay planted in the ground. No, three days later, he burst forth with what? With shouts of joy. That's our story. Our story is that the resurrection is real. And what's more joyful than going from death to life? Jesus didn't stay dead, but he burst forth also that the promises, not just in Psalm 126, but, but of the whole Bible could be kept for those who trust in him. I love, I love the second to last verse of the book of Luke. It's Luke chapter 24, verse 52, and this is after Jesus has burst forth with shouts of joy from the grave. It's after Jesus has ascended into heaven, and Luke records for us at the very end of his first of two volumes, he says that the disciples... They went away, they went back towards Jerusalem, back towards home, and they were worshiping him with what? With great joy. With great joy. Jesus coming back to life, almost too, too good to be true, like a dream filled with laughter, just like the first part of this psalm. And, and so now, what about the end of our story? What about the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 4, where we receive the promise that one day God himself will wipe every single tear from our eyes? Have you ever thought about the beauty and the intimacy that's contained in that promise? 
I mean, think about right now. How many people in your life would you let wipe the tears from your eyes? One, maybe, maybe two. And, and that's the point. The point is that at the end of time, when all wrongs have been made right, when everything has been fully restored and there's no more sorrow and no more sadness and no more sin because it's been fully destroyed, the point is that we are going to be so close to our God that him reaching out to wipe the tears from our eyes will be the most natural action possible. And try to picture with me the corresponding joy that will come with that. Because now, if I wipe away Ashley's tears, yes, that's hopefully comforting and special, but if it's a big enough problem, I can't make it go away. I can't fix it. I can only comfort. But when God wipes away my tears, when God wipes away your tears, it's not just that he can fix it, it's that he already has. I'll picture the joy that will come with that. Ultimate joy then, hopefully, prayerfully, brings us back to joy now and brings us back to our big idea for the morning. Joy can be found. Found in history, not in distractions. Found as a gift, not as a treasure hunt. And yes, yes, even found in a field of tears because a harvest is coming, a harvest of joy that we cannot even fathom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son Jesus who makes all of this possible. Thank you that he came and lived and died and rose again that we might have joy and have it everlasting, Father, in you because of you. I pray, Father, that we would achieve a climate of joy in our souls by making you the ultimate in our lives, God. Help us to do this by the power of your spirit in the name of your son Jesus, amen.